Hello, everyone. Welcome back to I See What You're Saying, the Disciplined Listening Podcast. I'm Michael Reddington, and today it is my complete pleasure to introduce our next guest, Mr. Robin Dreek. And where do I even start with this introduction? Robin is a former Marine Corps officer, a former FBI special agent and counterintelligence specialist, the founder of People Formula, the host of the Forge by Trust podcast, author of three books, including The Code of Trust, and a man who has turned his career into catching spies into a career of teaching executives how to recruit allies in business. And I am extremely thrilled for this conversation, so thankful for him sharing his time so he can share lessons from his experience with the FBI, lessons from his experience in the Marine Corps, lessons in his experience teaching and working with executives, top takeaways from all three of his books, examples from his podcast. I'm really, really, really excited to have Robin here. And this is going to be an episode with so many takeaways that we can all apply in our business and personal lives. So as I said, Really excited for this one. Before we get started, as always, I want to make sure we thank our sponsors as well. First, Humantel. Please, if you haven't already, enter the code INQUASIVE25 when you go to humantel.com for 25% off all of their online facial displays of emotion recognition training. If we want to get better at understanding what people are likely thinking and feeling at any moment in time as their, as their emotions change during our conversations, Humantel has the best-in-class online training for that. Please go check them out. Also, please check out Emotional Intelligence Magazine at ei-magazine.com for their ever-expanding library of emotional intelligence-related resources, books, articles, podcasts, webinars, events, the list goes on. Please check out Emotional Intelligence Magazine. And also, please check out CertifiedInterviewer.com for the International Association of Interviewers. For all the professional interviewers who may be watching, that is the go-to resource for the latest legal updates, the latest content, webinars, events, networking opportunities, educational opportunities. It's where you go to find out if you qualify and how to pursue the Certified Forensic Interviewer designation. Please check Check out certifiedinterviewer.com for the International Association of Interviewers. Thank you again for joining us. Thank all of our sponsors for making this possible. Thank you, Robin Dreek, for joining us today. And without further ado, Mr. Robin Dreek. Good morning, Robin. How are you? I'm <laughs> good, Michael. How are you? I'm doing very well. It is so awesome to see you again. I can't thank you enough time. I can't thank you enough, I should say, for continuing to share your time with me and coming on here to share so much of your fantastic experience and insight with our audience. That's because I have the supreme man crush on you. That's all it is. <laughs> you got mad you're, skills that I want. <laughs> you're going to make me blush. It's going to be embarrassing. I know. I'm going to see you going for the, right to the top of your head. <laughs> uh, yeah, with, with bald, I can't hide it. I can't hide it. <laughs> Well, hey, I, I know you're working me into your schedule and, and I really appreciate it. So I would like to take a, a, just a little bit to kind of set the stage for listeners who might not be familiar with you, although they absolutely should be. And hopefully they'll be following up with a lot of your content after this conversation. Um, but please correct me where I'm wrong. Do I understand that your career trajectory essentially traveled from aspiring astronaut to sales? Yeah. <laughs> but aren't we all in sales <laughs> one way or another my man one way or we, another for everything we're doing in life we're inspiring people to buy the product of me 
and include us in our lives in some way. And whether we have an ask as part of that or we're here to give, um, we're trying to connect with people in a way to have them inspired to put us in their lives. And I use that word inspired because inspiration has to come from within the other person and convincing has to come from within us. And if you want to be outwardly focused, if you're going to lead and succeed, as they say, as the cliche goes, and connect with human beings, it has to be all about them. So it's about inspiration. I just had a conversation with a CEO, an Irish senator, who gave me the line. It was, I was talking about his leadership style. It's like, well, it was never about me anyway. And when you think about what you just said, it's, it's the exact thing. If we make it about us, we'll never be successful. Or our success, we'll fool ourselves probably into over-evaluating the success we feel like we've achieved without realizing how much we've right. left on the table. So I made the joke about sales. I've had the opportunity to hear you speak before. Uh, and you talk about when you were with the FBI that your job was to sell perhaps the toughest product of all time. So for the listeners who might not be familiar, can you get us up to speed a little bit on what your main career focus was when you were with the Bureau? Yes. But first, I want to point out to your audience that right off the bat, you are doing hands down one of the best things you can do to forge trust with absolutely any human being is you're quoting me back to myself really perfectly. So thank you. <laughs> I, I recognize it. I see it. And when we and when we see and hear and experience someone that understands us, that is curious about us and paid it so close attention that they can actually literally take the words that we speak and speak them themselves and reflect it back to us. What makes a human being feel better, feel more connected? And so that's what Michael just did. So yes, um, I did have the toughest sales job, as I say, in the world. But I've been doing it my entire life. You talked about how to be outwardly focused, and that is the crux of leadership and sales and my job recruiting spies, and I'll get into that in a second, was how to be outwardly focused. You and your background, you had a great upbringing from at a young age, getting reps of being outwardly focused, of being of service, the behaviors modeled by your parents, by the things they either by force or by inspiration, they had you do to be outwardly focused. Mine, unfortunately, took years to discover that I was inwardly focused. I was about survival. I was about as I call it, chopping wood, cutting grass, because my parents had no money. I literally, we he literally heated our house all by wood for years. And the first couple of winters, we ran out of wood midwinter. And so you're literally chopping wood all winter long to keep the house warm. And I had to chisel my way out the door in the morning because the condensation on the inside of the house would freeze us in. And so that was just to go to the bus stop. What was literally, I'm a Gen Xer. So it was literally a mile each way, then a 45 minute bus ride into school. And so that makes me, it made me very self-centered, not a sense of looking me and egotistical, but looking me survival. I needed to, to have grit, resilience, and self-determination in order to do that. Great traits in life, but, but put the dichotomy on the balance. So later I learned I needed to make it outwardly focused on others as well and keep that dichotomy in balance. And so I was recruiting allies my entire life for success because I wanted to go to the Naval Academy. From the Naval Academy, I wanted to be, like you said, I wanted to be an astronaut. But I had to take the SATs seven times just to get the minimum score to get in the Naval Academy. So you don't let someone like that major in aerospace engineering, which they did, failed out of that, did a majestic job of that. Um, but even to get in the Naval Academy, with, a, with I had A minus, B plus grades, and I did all I could to get in. And how did I do that? I recruited allies. 
I was gregarious, outgoing, friendly, demonstrative, all the fun things, voted football captain, high school president, all that stuff you think is important in life, which was about popularity, which is about self. And when I got to the academy and things started falling apart, I was recruiting allies to stay in, but I wasn't recruiting allies to get better grades. And so I wasn't putting it because I wasn't putting it together yet. I wasn't putting together, you need to make it about others. But I so but I had reps of recruiting allies. And so I get in the FBI eventually, long story short, after the Marine Corps and not being an astronaut. And I got assigned to New York field office where my job is to recruit Russian military intelligence officers, GRU officers that are working at the United Nations under diplomatic covers. And they were they were intelligence officers or some people call them spies for Russia. And I my product I was selling was American patriotism to Russian spies that didn't want to buy my product. It was illegal for me to initiate contact by treaty and by all law and all that thing. So I couldn't cold call basically. And then how do you sell a product that you don't think anyone wants to buy? It wasn't even a product that they could use in their life. It was a service, you know, which is the hardest thing in the world. It's like selling insurance to people who are, you know, it's like selling life insurance to someone who's dead already. I mean, what use is that? Um, And so how do you do that? Well, it's where the the recruiting allies comes in. It's it's you. You're literally representing someone that is the crux of everything. If you're going to do an interview, you're going to create a relationship with someone. How do you make someone feel safe? And so my job was to discover a challenge, a priority, or pain point in someone's life, which is sales. What what thing is going on in someone's life, and what are you going to offer that can solve that problem in their life? And can they trust you? And can they feel safe with you to do it? In my case. I would find and identify people that already had in their mind that they had something they wanted to do. They wanted to make a different life for their children. They wanted education for them. They wanted a better life from their perspective outside of Putin's regime. They couldn't stand what the oligarchs have done to their country. That is a priority and a pain point in their life. And I have a solution. That's the first point. But the second, the most challenging was, can they trust me with their life? And so how do you put yourself in that position? And so that's that's where it all begins. That's why it's the toughest sales job. And if you can do that, you can really focus and do it with anyone. Let go of your own ego. Let go of your agenda. Let go of everything. Create the art that you create. Because I know you create art when you communicate with people. You've been doing it a long time. You create this art form specific to the individual you're communicating with. And you're present. No agenda. No ask. So you can hear and listen to the words they're using. Everything they're doing because everything has a meaning to them. Explore that meaning with curiosity and offer yourself in those areas. There you go. Long answer. Sorry. No, we've got as much time as you need, man. Your <laughs> long answers are what people signed up for. They didn't sign up for my questions. They signed up for your answers. So that, that's perfect. Um, and you hit on so many important points there. In, with the background that I come from, one of the things that we preach consistently is help people save face and protect their self. I love that. I, I'm sorry, my, I'm interrupted. I literally used that the other day. I was with law enforcement professionals. You know, it was a Virginia State Police first line supervisor course. I literally quoted you again. The worst thing you can do in the world is discover someone's shame and show it to them. That was right from your episode on my show because you articulated that well. Anyway, continue on that train of thought because that was wonderful that you said that. Well, I appreciate it. Thank you. One of the favorite interrogation examples that I use is very long story short. I was up in the Northeast. I'm in the middle of interrogating a guy for a reasonable amount of theft. And I find out that his brother is the manager of the receiving dock. 
And for anybody who's worked in the private sector, your loading dock is ground zero for most deceptive activity. And so now I've got an admitted thief whose brother runs the area in the company where most theft is probably occurring. Apples, trees, come on. Now I got to get this guy to snitch on his brother. So people will ask, you know, how do you get him to snitch on his brother? Well, simple. It's not simple. But the, the simple concept is you align his self-image with that. So telling me the truth about what he and his brother did together is a natural next step in the conversation. And so the pivot was not to get him, not to convince him it's okay to snitch on your brother, but to help him understand that as a brother, I have a brother's two years younger than me. He's my best friend. Your number one job in life is to back your brother's play. And sometimes when you back your brother's play, you find yourself in a situation where maybe you make a regrettable decision. And by illustrating that, now I'm aligning, allowing him to align his idea that, okay, well, if Mike understands that a brother's got to back a brother's play, he doesn't think I'm a bad person. I have nothing to be ashamed of. I can go ahead and share that information. So obviously I don't want to get into tradecraft or secrets or anywhere around the edge of that bucket we talked about earlier where things might fall to the side that we want to make sure we don't talk about. Um, but if to the degree that you can share what are some of the techniques or approaches that you found most successful in helping somebody align betraying their country with their self-image? It's a really great question because there's a, it's a, it was an education I had. And I think we'd all have because my understanding of the spy world was what I saw in James Bond as well. I mean, the, when you go through the FBI Academy at Quantico, we literally out of the I don't even know how long we were there, somewhere between three and six months. I don't remember. I was young. We literally had three days of counterintelligence work out of the entire time. The FBI focuses mostly on back then we did this bank robbery scenario. We did this white collar crime scenario. Now they do a terrorism scenario. So the world of counterintelligence was not really explained well. And they didn't have people that were the Jedi masters of it teaching it either. So I didn't really understand any of this. And so I was like, people that watch TV, watch the Americans or anything is that you're thinking that you have to get someone to betray their country. The first thing I learned very rapidly when I, the first time I was about to meet a, a high ranking Russian diplomat who was working, cooperating with us was I was told by the senior agent that I was about to meet him. He said, if you ever use that word defector, if you ever use that word spy, if you ever use that word, he's going to walk right out on you because from his point of view, he is a complete patriot that is helping his country overcome the horrendousness that's going on there. And so it was the, the, this greatest skill and technique was the skill and technique of letting go of what I call the, the carnival tricks um, that you're trained to do. They're important. I, I don't diminish any stage of training that people get because you have, we're all born the same. I mean, you're doing a podcast, you're seeing People are born the same and we all have these arcs in life that start, you know, at a young age that kind of give us our, our inspiration to follow these different paths. But really, when we're born genetically and biologically, we're all pretty equal. What we do with it is what's different. And that's the beauty of it. And at some point, if you decide you want to get into interviewing, sales, recruiting spies, you have a starting point. You have to learn skills, tools, and techniques in order to do that. And those skills, tools, and techniques are about what I need to do. And where's the focus if I'm thinking about what I need to do? It's on me. And the challenge with that is 
can I get can I get someone's pin number and date of birth and all those fun carnival tricks? Yes, I'm very good at that. But when you dive a little bit deeper and you stop playing with human beings, because you need to, you need to go out in the playground and play an experiment and see what works more effectively. And then you get a little bit deeper beyond the carnival tricks and you start seeing the art behind the paint by number, you're realizing what's at the core of it all. And so when my carnival tricks fell away and I started understanding the real skill is just having empathy, seeing the world through the other person's point of view, listening intently to the language that they're using. And the big thing here is people are always asking, what do I need to do? What do I need to focus on? And I go, no. The key is, is to do all the homework you possibly can on the situation, the individual, the things you want to know. And then the second you enter that arena, you got to let go of it all. Because in order to baseline, people ask me all the time, Robin, how do I behaviorally baseline? I go, yes. It's letting go of every agenda you got. Because if you have something you're looking for, you're going to miss everything else. If you have something you're not trying to do, you're going to miss everything else. If you are trying to see deception, you're going to see only see deception, miss truth. If you're only trying to see truth, you're going to miss all the deception. You have to let go of absolutely everything. So the best technique is to be curious. That's it. Deep, unabashed curiosity without judgment. I love when I hear something I've never heard before that I don't agree with, that shocks me, that is when I'm like, oh my gosh, like Brene Brown says in her books, if you don't understand someone, if you don't agree with someone, great, get closer. That is it. That is, because that's what empathy is. Empathy is not doing something about it necessarily. It's literally reversing, seeing the world through someone else's optic, because only then can you communicate in a way that they want to be communicated with. You know, and this is what the greatest interrogators in the world know. So I know what you did so well. You're doing it so naturally when you're getting confessions from these, call them petty, petty thieves that were shoplifting in stores. You had empathy. I remember asking you very specifically, you know, what inspired someone to confess to you? Was it because you were sitting there judging them and, and pointing their shame out to them? Or it was like it was walking a mile in their shoes. You knew those shoes. So that that's the technique. There's no magical thing to it now. Getting to the level where you can let go of an agenda because you have confidence in yourself that I don't need to try anything. I can just be me. I can be present. Give that greatest gift of being present for someone. And if a word stands out, ooh, explore that word. That's fascinating. If you see them react to something, ooh, that must have been a topic that was sensitive to them in some way. I need to decide and if I want to, how to, you know, all these things, how to explore. So it's much simpler than we make it. <laughs> It can be, and yet you just managed to pack so much into like a four and a half minute answer, man. <laughs> it's called a narrative answer. I ask narrative questions and I give narrative answers, which makes me extremely long winded. So I apologize. <laughs> no, I'm great with it. Like I said, no one's no one logged in today to watch me ask you questions. They they logged in to watch you answer them. Uh, but w- just to go back through some of that, yeah. first of all, I think that was probably the most polite and educational anyone's ever been correcting me. So I appreciate that. Oh, I didn't correct you. you. How, did I, go- how, did, oh, how did I correct you? I thought you no, 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 no. <laughs> because I asked the question about betraying their country. And oh, actually, yeah. you know, if you if you say it in that way, they don't view it that way. That's a very important way that it, when you talk about walking a mile in their shoes and understanding where they're coming from, that's an important shift. And then when we think about the power of the words that we use and the unintentional emotional responses they create in yeah. other people, I have a young son and it drives my wife nuts. But if depending on what mood I'm in and what mood he's in, 
I'll play a game that I'm the only one that knows I'm playing or I'll <laughs> answer my son using certain words just to watch the reactions it gets out of him. Because I know if I answer the question one of four different ways, I'm going to get one of four reactions from him. Now, what I can't do is if he throws a fit, I can't punish him right. for reacting to a question that I knew was going to cause him to have a meltdown when I answered it that way. So I've, I've got to have that awareness. But it's it's very true that the specific word choice we use is so significant and understanding where somebody else is coming from back to aligning it with the self-image. You talked a lot about empathy. And I'm sure when people woke up this morning and chose whatever podcast they were going to listen to, they were thinking to themselves, you know what I'm really looking for today? I'm looking for a former Marine and federal agent who talks a lot about empathy. <laughs> I believe and I, I would love to get into the behavior stuff coming up. I promise I won't forget that. But I know empathy is a huge topic for you. It's a huge focus for you. And I believe that you've created a word or some concepts around empathy when you teach it and when, when you work with people. So is there a specific way that you like to reference empathy or that you like to try to work with people to employ it in their conversations? Yeah, I think you're referring to stempathy, the word I kind of came up with for sizing people up. Yeah, so I call it stempathy and not as catchy as I wanted it to be, <laughs> but what it is, is it's, it's the way that I try to engage people is, and, and when I share with others is to really think in terms of a very cognitive, thoughtful process for solving problems, which is very stoic. Uh, I'm a great reader of lots of different books, yours included. And uh, one of my favorite authors is Ryan Holiday. He wrote tons of books on stoicism, from Ego's the Enemy to Stillness is Key to, um, oh, I, I, I can I can list them all. Um, just give me a second, but I won't. But what Stoicism is all about, people, they used to be called the cynics. And people used to think that Stoicism is about being cynical. No, it's actually just being thoughtful. Because Stoicism and Stoicism is all about solving problems, thoughtfully, cognitively solving problems. And so that's what we're doing when we're engaging another human being is thinking in terms of, identifying their problems as well as your own because leaders are but leaders are always solving other people's problems first to inspire them to be on your team to help us move our ball forward but that's what it's about it's about solving problems now the second half of that is you can't solve problems like i said without understanding their problems first and that requires empathy and i i'm i try to include them when i'm speaking together because a lot of times it's less so now than i think it's been in the last 5 or 10 years when people used to hear, especially the hardcore dominant type personalities, hear that word empathy, they think it's soft and screw that. And uh, I don't need that mushy gush in my life. And that's why I throw that stoicism side in there, because empathy has nothing to do with soft and mushy. Empathy actually has to do with communication. That's what leaders need to do. Compassion is the action of empathy and action together. And so we're not talking about compassionate, although it's a great thing to do and be is being compassionate. It's understanding someone else's plight in life and taking action in terms of that, because that's what leaders also do. But empathy is just half of that equation. So it's the combination of stoicism, of solving problems and empathy, solving problems from the point of view of the needs of someone else. There you go. I love it. And again, so much that you said there, but I was talking with somebody the other day who is an interrogator who I admire. 
and the quote that I'm now stealing with him, because that's what I realized podcasting is all about is collecting and stealing quotes from other people. So Beautiful. that's, that's the business that I'm in now is stealing quotes from other people. And then, um, oh, and then, and I'm sorry. And then you'll have the, the misfortune, like I've done a few times of you attribute that quote to someone else. And I've literally been corrected by one of my former guests said, Nope, I said that. I go, like, oh, my bad. <laughs> yeah. Yep. I'll own it. <laughs> yep. My fault. Extra footnote. <laughs> yep. Dave told me, you know, it's not being, it's not soft, it's strategic. And so we, where you're combining strategic and empathy already, like those two quotes going together, it's so true. It's not, being empathetic is not an abdication of my power or my ability. It's putting somebody else in a position to give them what they need to experience in order to commit to saying or doing what we need them to say or do in relation to the greater outcome that we're looking to achieve so you talked, you mentioned very briefly as you went through there that we all run into people who are maybe that stereotypical type A personality or have that need for control or might feel like bullying their way through a conversation is the most successful path for them. I'm curious in your experience, how well have you seen that approach actually work when it comes to asking people to make very difficult and often emotionally charged decisions? Oh, since I was that person and I failed majestically when I did it, I'll tell you, it doesn't work at all. The reason why I became who I became and do the way and engage people the way I engage is because that system's broke. It does not work. And when you get the reps in of constantly trying to make those that headway, you're going to fail. And we see it all the time. We see <laughs> the people that we've been around, and we'll just use work as an example. I mean, how many times have all of us worked around other people? And you get the, because a type A hard charging individual like I was, they get a lot of crap done. And when they're getting a lot of crap done, when they hit that entry level and their tempo's out of sync with everyone else, so they got a higher tempo, um, they're restless, they can get a lot of stuff done. It makes the bosses look really good. Because what are they trying to do? They're trying to impress the bosses. They're trying to get ahead so they can get themselves ahead. The problem starts happening is because they're actually being disrespectful without even realizing to everyone around them. They're creating enemies and not allies to get these things done because their tempo is so high. So they get promoted though, because they're actually make the boss looks good. Because when you make the boss feel safe, when you make the boss look good and the boss is going to get promoted because of you, you can now get promoted. The problem is that behavior of being self-centered and of being a bully just got rewarded. So it's Pavlov's dog. And bingo, now they think, oh, I just got rewarded for being the big bully. I'm going to be a bigger bully. But now they're going to start failing because now you can't lead without people that want to follow you. And if you're the bully in the, in the, you know, the, the bull in the China room, you're going to crash everything and you have a zero ability to recruit allies, to forge trust, to make people feel safe. All you're doing is make people feel unsafe. And if, you, if people don't feel safe, they don't innovate. No innovation, no problem solving. SOPs are always a great starting point. How often does a standing operating procedure stand in place after first contact with the enemy? Somewhere between never. <laughs> right. It's a great starting point. And it's a great thing that you can follow when you don't know what to do next. But as, as situations arise, you have to innovate and people will not innovate to solve problems unless they feel safe. And if you're the boss that is constantly bullying people and using that brash, brusque in your face 24-7, now granted, are there times when you have to poke someone in the eye, kick him in the ass? Yes. 
But if, as Jocko Willink and Leif Babin talk about in extreme ownership dichotomy leadership, if you don't have that reservoir of goodwill built that you can take from, you're done. It just won't work. And so the way you build that reservoir is by making about others, is by having empathy, is by solving their problems, being a resource for their success without an ask. So that the day that you do have an ask, they're all in. And so that's the problem is that now these bully leaders don't get promoted anymore and they start thinking, I must have gone soft. So become bigger assholes. Excuse my language, but it's, it's, it's just a, it becomes this, this self propensity to keep going unless they have something that we all need in our lives enter their life. A loving critic, someone who objectively can see them. They're passionate about them as a human being. They want them to be successful, but they're not emotionally tied to the outcome. And so when you have a loving critic enter your life and say, hey, Mike, you're a little off, brother. And they listen. Otherwise, the ship will never get righted. So that, that's, that's the problem with being that way. And, and how do we learn that doesn't work? Failure. You know, how do we learn that our dichotomy of self and others is out of balance? Easy, humbling moments. When you create, and this is the big thing that people have the hardest time with. The world is divided into wound collectors and problem solvers. If you're a wound collector, here's how you can identify yourself. If it's everyone else's fault, if, if, if you're... If you're a product of bad luck, bad timing, it's it's I'm always on the wrong end of the stick. No, that means you're a wound collector. What are you going to do about it? We had an expression in the Marine Corps is really simple. When crap hit the fan, everyone's looking to blame someone else. No, look, they look at you and say, what now, Lieutenant? What are you going to do about it? Anyway, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> keep rolling, keep rolling. The, the loving critic piece really strikes a chord. There's so much value there. If we don't have people who trust our relationship with them enough mm. that they can be open up and honest with us and say things that honestly might hurt a little bit. And honestly, the more it hurts, the more valuable it probably is. The more you probably needed it, yeah. In order to try to help course correct us, there's so much value there. I also love that wound collector analogy. There's a, there's a line from an old TV show that I like to use. I like to refer to it as the uh, lowest common denominator theory of communication. And the line from the TV show was, if you run into an asshole in the morning, you might have run into an asshole. If you run into assholes all day long, you're the asshole. And so when I teach it a little bit more professionally when we use it in our programs, but we, we use that example all the time. Like if I walk into 10 different meetings and I walk out of seven, eight, nine, 10 of them thinking they didn't understand me, my value, they didn't resonate. Well, I'm the only common thread in those seven to 10 meetings. What do I have to adjust? What do I have to do different? So such great points. There's a, another great author that I, I've recently had on my show and became a good friend. His name is Joshua Medcalf. He wrote the book, Chop Wood, Carry Water. He's written a lot of books on, in, on this kind of great productive human interaction. And I've been using a quote by him all the time and asking exactly what you're saying. Ask yourself this, who do you love to see come through the door? Like when you get an email from someone, you see the name pop up, do you get excited? When you see a text coming in, do you get excited? When they come in the room, do you get excited or are you cringing? And so think about who you love to see and expect to come through that door and then ask yourself, are you that person? Mm. It's a great way to look at it. Be that person. Yeah. And then then the second part of that is, uh, who will cry when you at your funeral? <laughs> 
Oh, let's not go down that road too far right now. It's still <laughs> early in the morning, but super important consideration. Yeah. There's also a thread you've been weaving in here that I hope people are starting to latch onto that so much of listening and authentic communication and relationship building, which is really what you're talking about, is problem solving. Mm-hmm. And it's hard to problem solve if we're stuck in our own head. It's hard to problem solve if we're focused on ourselves. It's hard to problem solve if, if we're only thinking about what we need and not really attaching on to what somebody else needs. You've done so much. And I'd love to try to find ways to touch on as much as we can with the limited time that we have today. But I am curious because you mentioned earlier as you started going through the academy and started learning that a lot of the perspective you had getting into the intelligence or counterintelligence business came from Hollywood, James Bond. And so, you know, I've got friends that are firefighters that won't watch firefighter TV shows because they're like, that's ridiculous. And for me, in my background, there's a lot of investigative shows I didn't watch because, you know, you watch two episodes and you think, okay, that's not how it works in real life. So I'm curious from your perspective, what are some of the maybe most entertaining misconceptions people have about the line of work that you came from that? Yeah, maybe that's what Hollywood shows us. But realistically, good luck recruiting an asset doing that. Yeah, there's a lot of them. Um, the first one that always stands out is the time. I mean, TV shows will always wrap up, you know, really rapidly in an hour generally, and they generally will give you a time frame that they find out something today, and within a week, the the problems resolved, the challenges resolved. I was on recruitment operations of my own that lasted my entire career. I was in the FBI 22 years before I retired, and I literally had operations that started on day one that uh, I had a intelligence officer that was a major in his intelligence service. And I bumped into him again when he was a senior colonel getting ready to retire at the end of his career. Always seeing if he has got a new problem, challenge, or pain point, I can be a solution for. And I had others that would, you get a very quick answer, never see him again in five minutes. <laughs> so it ranged all over the place. And it's also the, the one size fits all model isn't it either because when you're creating art it's 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 a piece of art everyone has a different art that they like and so you have to create different art i love using the example of leonardo da vinci leonardo da vinci created the mona lisa the mona lisa was a piece of art that he created that was never finished as he mastered a new technique he would then apply it to mona lisa he add a new brushstroke a new pigment a new shade of light as he was learning and experiencing life as we all do we're always better today than we were yesterday a year ago can you imagine five years ago the differences i, I cringe even looking at my own podcast a year ago the, the interviewing skills i had then compared to now and i know tomorrow i'm going to be cringing about today and so it's about taking that and moving that forward and so that's 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 part of it. The other part too is that people think that world of recruiting spies or espionage is all about, well, if you're committing espionage, it's all about subterfuge, mis misperceptions and manipulation, all that. But if you're going to be on my end where you're trying to make someone feel safe to do things that might get them and their families killed and their entire legacy wiped out by a regime, the last thing in the world to do is subterfuge, deception, manipulation, because that breeds distrust. I I have been part of cases where, first of all, every case I ever was on at the high levels, these weren't people that you convinced in the moment. I mean, think about this. Always, here's a reverse. Here's a context. Mike, say that you have a really big challenge in your life. God forbid something's going very sideways in your life with your son, with your wife, with your family. 
you're in a country that has completely fallen apart. Your healthcare system sucks. And the only way that you're going to be able to do something, I've literally had cases of this where the only way to save their child was to get him out of their healthcare system. And that was literally killing him from what they couldn't do. That's a priority challenge and pain point. And that healthcare system was put in place because of that asshole running my country. And it's not the country that I signed up for. It's not the country that my grandparents were part of. I'm proud of my background, proud of my heritage, and this and this new crap place is killing my family. That's that reverse context. And now it's in their mind for years and years, and they're trying to create a, an opportunity for themselves to solve that problem. It's not something that hits their head like this. Oh, just give them a million dollars on the street corner and he'll say yes. I've never, I've seen people try it and I laugh at it. It's the most ridiculous thing I've ever seen in the world. So if someone came up to think about this, if you had a critical life crisis in your, in your life and you're scared about everything that could happen to your family and someone, some stranger walks up to you on the street and says, Hey, I got a deal for you. I got a million dollars. Come over here. What's your reaction? Put as much distance between me and you as I possibly can. Just scared to live in crap out of them. You know, and so it's understanding, recognizing who might have that priority and challenge and pain point, and then creating an art for them so you can be at the right place at the right time to make them feel safe with you first. And then touch and say, I see your pain right here. Would you like to grab a cup of coffee? And that you got to do it in a way that they don't think it's their own system that's trying to trick them. Because they're constantly testing loyalties. And so there's so much fear. And so how and so that's what they don't portray in the movies at all. It's it's a very subtle art to try to find someone who's been preparing their entire lives. This is not a flippant decision people make. This is not, you know, people love to think it's a you know, I, I worked with people that think well, we just have to cold pitch. If it's like buying lotto, if you buy a million lotto tickets, eventually you'll hit. Maybe. Everyone ever I ever worked with ever came over to our side. They were thinking about it for years, decades. My job is to try to figure out which one of those were doing that and place myself in a position where they felt safe when they found me, that we could have a dialogue about seeing if they could trust me. They knew I had what they needed to solve their, their pain. But the second part of that, could they trust me with their life and their family's life? So those are the things that they don't talk about in the movies. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. And that I feel like that ties so well back into even just like an offhand comment you made earlier about getting away from the carnival tricks. Yeah. That persuasion isn't about that one word or that one action or that one bribe or that one gotcha. That if you are building a commitment, especially in the face of fear, that that typically is going to involve multiple touches, multiple conversations, multiple experiences over a, a long period of time. Yes. And the greater the fear, the more that's going to take. And there might be some people listening who are thinking, okay, well, that makes total sense, Robin. You know, you're recruiting spies and intelligence assets. And in my business, people don't have that level of fear. And that's probably a true statement, but yet the fear that, customers have or that employees have in business is often far more palpable than we might give it credit. That fear of embarrassment, that fear of failure, that fear of being judged, that fear of not being recognized, that fear of saying the wrong thing that then negatively impacts the relationship. And as you know far better than I do, when somebody's in that fear-based mindset, 
it becomes target fixation. Their brain starts to shut down. They're motivated by fear. So like with that hypothetical, why would I put so much distance between you and I, if you just offered me a million dollars? Well, because right now I'm afraid. And if somebody I don't know and I don't trust just offered me a million dollars in a fear-based mindset that likely can only make things worse. So I don't know who you are, but I got to get out of here. So understanding and finding ways to really work to persuade and connect and build relationships over time really becomes a difference maker. So I'm curious, and if we could translate this a little bit, maybe for an audience that might be thinking more about their family life or their Mm -hmm. business life, what are some techniques that you used or examples that you may have to help build trusting relationships in the face of fear? Simple. Again, these things are so simple because what, believe it or not, carnival tricks are complex <laughs> because carnival tricks that you're trying to do, you get a pin number, date of birth and, and quick rapport. I teach quick rapport. It's, there's a lot of things that you have to focus on doing to get someone to do something because it's, and you, you use the word before called tactical or strategic. When you're thinking in terms of those, these are people, and there's nothing wrong with it. You're thinking transactional relationships. Transactional relationships are, I meet you, I meet you in a store, I meet you, I got a product and a, and a service to sell that's here, it's, it's tangible, it's quick, it, and we have a quick exchange. And the level of feeling safe is a lot lower. But if it's in your mind at all times that I just have to make people feel safe with me, whether it's going to be a quick transaction or it's going to be sustained long-term, doesn't matter. Oh, I'm a believer that you should always think long-term because you never know. Because when you're thinking long-term, what are you doing? You're creating a relationship and you're creating, people don't like to use the word brand anymore. You're creating a personal reputation that you're going to get the number one things we have in the entire world, referrals. Referrals to if someone has a problem, challenge, or pain point that they meet someone in their life, they're going to say, go to Michael. Even if it's not even your own industry that you sell things in or problems that you normally solve. He might know someone because Michael knows everyone because everyone loves Michael. So that's what you want to do. So always be thinking long-term. Don't be thinking transactional. And the, and the simple things you can do, it takes great humility to do this, but you be open, you be transparent, and you be vulnerable. Open and honest and transparent. It, when you are those things, in other words, you have to balance the dichotomy of confidence that I actually have a skill set. I have a product and service that will solve all your problems. And I know it inside and out. I can talk your ear off of it, about it. But here's what it doesn't do. Here's the humility side. The balancing the confidence with the humility and being transparent, that makes people feel safe. Because if you're willing to tell me what's wrong with it, because here's a guarantee. Nothing in life is perfect. No human being is perfect. People that try to be perfect, destroy trust. And so just be open and honest, be transparent. And the vulnerability comes in there. If you have the confidence and you actually have the capability to do things and reliability, and you actually showed your vulnerability where where you've fallen down and failed, that's someone I trust implicitly. Because if you're willing to share with me things that might not be that great, you're going to share everything. Why wouldn't you? And that makes me feel safe. And so the greatest salespeople in the world, the greatest parents in the world, the greatest everyone in the world are the ones that can solve your problem. They can bring their strengths to bear for you, but they're also going to be honest and own it when they can't. They're going to find someone who can through that great network of people they have because they have that great reputation that can solve that problem for you. The greatest people in the world are going to be the ones that actually then will reach back out proactively because because they took time to figure out what your challenges and pain points in life were. 
as they got a new relationship that enters their life, they're going to think of you. And Mike, they're going to call you on the phone and they're going to email you and say, hey, we haven't seen each other in a while, but I remember that conversation we had and you had said this. I just met this person here. I'll only do an intro if you're interested in it, but it might align well with you. If that sounds good to you, great. Let me know. I'll do an e-intro. If not, hey, hope you're doing well. Best to you and your family. That is what creates healthy, strong relationships and trust. And what skill set, again, you ask for very tactical skills is really easy. Open, honest, transparent, vulnerable. And now I have the fourth. Now I'll, I'll, I'll do a little, little more on top of that. Long answer. I know I'm monologuing at you. I have my four keys of communication. And these four keys are very, very simple things. They're actually, if you go to my website, it's a free course, no upsell, no anything. It's called the Keys of Communication. It's on Udemy, so I don't even collect an email address. I really screwed myself. Um, but if you can do one of these four things in every conversation you have, it shifts the focus from you to them, and it demonstrates to them that they can trust you. They feel safe with you. And that is number one, seek their thoughts and opinions instead of sharing your own. Two, Talks and talk and speak in terms of their challenges, priorities, and pain points instead of yours. Three is the bedrock of everything. Be non-judgmentally curious, as we said before. Just be curious without judging. And you, here's a challenge in this. Here's what you got to let go of. You might be able to keep your mouth shut, but if you're still thinking that you don't agree with someone, it's going to come out non-verbally. You're going to have what I call incongruence between words and non-verbals, and you're going to look creepy. You actually have to imbue inside yourself this deep curiosity to understand the beauty around you and the art that's being presented and finally empower people with choices. You do one of those four things, the entire shift goes from you to them. They're going to feel safe. They're going to love to be in your... You are going to be the one that walks through the door that people can't wait to see. Out of all of that. Now, you mentioned that's for free on your website. I will include all links to your books, your website. Yeah, yeah. I'll make sure everything's in the show notes. But if right now someone is listening and they're ready to pause this conversation and go do that, what's your website? Peopleformula.com, all one word, peopleformula.com. Cool. Lots of stuff we'll on make, there. <laughs> we'll make sure we'll make sure we share it for sure. But you mentioned it, so we wanted to make yeah. sure that that we got it out there right then. Again, I love these answers. There's so much. I feel like we could spend an hour unpacking every one of your five-minute answers. Um, those, those four keys at the end oh my god so my wife tells me to shut up all the time mike i'm sorry no 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 this is what i want like, i'm not saying this to be funny people didn't log in today to watch me to listen to me ask questions the Robin, they five minute answers. you have to share that, um that the judgment the judgmental thing that you talk about and the behavioral incongruence that you talk about so spot on and something else to consider is i believe and i love your thoughts on this please a lot of times we have the hardest time controlling our nonverbals when we feel a moral or ethical affront with who we're speaking with. They, they're talking about something or they say something or they show a behavior, or they have a reaction that we feel like contradicts our moral code, our ethical code, our standard of values. And when we get those emotional spikes because of that, I feel like those are often the hardest ones to internalize. And that's where. I can sit here and say, well, I'm not judging Robin. But as soon as one of those leaks out, I absolutely am. Yep. And now not only have I lied to myself about it, but you can see it as well. So am I, am I on the right track with your experience about when it might be hardest to suspend judgment? 100%. And that's the moment when get closer. If, if someone says something, 
we've been through the last bunch of years between politics and COVID, some of the worst disconnects we've ever had as a, as a species on this planet. And it's exasperated because people like to highlight the differences as it sells ad space on social media and the news networks. And as soon as you hear something, people love to take sides. Robert Greene's book, The Laws of Human Nature, really articulates this very, very well. With We like to consume things that validate our own self-opinion. The problem is it's only your self-opinion, an opinion of a small group of people. I don't care how big your group of people that is. I've had, and you know, coming on my show on Monday, I have someone coming on with 16 million followers that I thought would be a world-known name. I bump into people who've never heard of them before. Because just because you think you're popular doesn't mean everyone's. I literally, the the only name I I've, I've tested this out. The only name that I seem to have universally people recognize is Leonardo da Vinci. And why is that? I always I love that question. Is why that dude was non-judgmentally curious about everything in life and you. And so if you find yourself in a situation where you know you have to get over this this judgy part you have inside you, and I had it. Oh my gosh, yes. Get closer. If you hear something that you don't agree with that strikes you as, you know, and you get the, you know, you get the nonverbals of disgust, read a book on it, read an article on it, get closer. Because here's a guarantee everyone that has that opinion, believe it or not, you think they're idiots. They put a lot of thought into that. Those thoughts and opinions that they have, they're expressing to you, makes them feel safe. Figure out why that makes them feel safe. What about it makes them feel safe. What's their background, their their upbringing, all the things. Again, the greatest um, certified forensic interviewers like yourself in the world get the greatest confessions from people because you sat there and you didn't judge. How does someone like you sit across from someone and get them to confess? It's not because you sat there and judged them. These are decisions that you would never make in a million years in your life as you're living it today. But in order to make that connection and inspire them to want to share with you, when it not won't even be in their best interest to share with you, you walked a mile in their shoes with them and you didn't agree with them. You just understood. You discovered that background story. That's why you do it. Because when you can get that level of empathy, that's when you connect with anyone. I refute. And if you can go forward in life with this one thought from this, it'll help you with absolutely everything. Do not allow anyone in your life to bother you. If someone in your life bothers you, get closer. It's your fault. Own it. It's your problem, not theirs. Get closer. Figure out that life. Discover the beauty of the art that they're presenting you. That's all you can do. Otherwise, you're going to be a life full of pain, anguish, and anxiety and not move forward with anyone. It's your choice. There's no right or wrong in this. It's just all a choice. Don't be a wound collector. Don't be a wound collector. Love it. So we've been talking for maybe 45 minutes now, and we've largely focused on your counterintelligence background, if I'm using the right term for it, or, or recruiting intelligence assets. Um, so I believe you did both, right? You were both recruiting spies and catching spies. You had yeah, it's basically, both. it's all building relationships. So you recruit a lot of confidential human sources to give you access to the intelligence officers that you're trying to recruit, as well as these confidential human sources are also providing intelligence that can solve uh, gaps of knowledge of our own country and our allies um, for safety and national security. Yeah. So we spent a lot of time on that. And here I'm saying, yep, yep. Like, oh, that's no big deal. And obviously <laughs> that's a huge deal. But the problem in talking to you for 60 minutes is you've done so many things that are a huge deal. And you've been a, a part of fascinating groups and done fascinating things and have so much to share. So I'd like to pivot for just a few minutes that we have left. You also 
were in charge of the behavioral analysis division of the FBI. Am I correct? Yeah, behavioral analysis program of the FBI. Yep. My fault. My fault. Uh, no, so no, not both. your fault. It, it's it's a hey, bureaucracies have lots of crap, and so yeah, so. I use titles and positions when describing my background to help people that aren't part of a, a, a cumbersome, burdensome organization understand what that is. So, but yeah, it's a behavioral analysis program. I was the head of it. Um, so I call myself the former chief of the behavioral analysis program of the FBI, counterintelligence behavioral analysis program. Very cool. So when you were focusing on the behavioral analysis side, what were some of the most impactful lessons that you learned when it comes to, as you say in your book that's behind you on your shoulder, your other book, your, your other other book that's behind you on your shoulder back there, sizing people up. When you are evaluating communication, we talked about like the empathy and the building relationships. But now if I'm having a conversation with somebody and I really want to be in tune to all the intelligence, the totality of the message that they're presenting to me, what were some of the most valuable lessons that you learned when you had the role in the behavior analysis program? So even before we got to sizing people up, which is kind of reversing that optic and seeing the world through their optic and how they're viewing the relationship by assessing their behavior when they're with us, because that's what sizing people up is about. It really came down to first what I was doing with the team, which I, at the time I didn't know it when I started. I started as a team member back in late 2001, 2002. I had the behavioral analysis team come on and help me with one of my cases. And I thought that was really damn cool. They, a bunch of agents from different field offices would come to me. They listened to me talk about my case. They brought an operational psychologist with them. And I talked to them about my case and my people inter, inter, that I'm interacting with or want to interact with, as well as they talked about my management, how I can communicate with management. And they helped me strategize communication about how to move forward with the case in a productive manner. I thought that was the coolest damn thing ever. and. I want to get on the team. I got on the team and I did this for years as a team member for different operations all across the country. So my team was a collateral duty for the most members. The person that runs it was permanent. And then I had an assistant that she helped out as well. But everyone else, it's a collateral duty. I had like 44 team members. And then when I took over the team, yeah, we did a couple, about 100, 200 assessments a year for all the high-end cases across the country when a case agent would had a, a challenge that they needed help with. We did that. And what I came to find out, I, I thought it was some, some mystical thing we did. I you know, I get a request for a human interaction, for an interview strategy, for a recruitment operation, and I assembled a, what I thought was a perfect team. And we strategize. We listen to the case agent talk about who they're going to talk to, talk about management, talk about challenges there. And we brought all this behavioral information in. We came up with what we call suggestions and points to consider for the case agent. And what I found out when I tried to write about it, someone asked me to write about and describe what my team did. That's why I really had that aha moment. It's why my entire life since this moment in 2013 circled around this concept of was all I ever all I was ever doing when I was running the team, all my team ever did, and all I was ever doing in life, all we we're all ever doing is strategizing trust. That was it. Every case was strategizing trust. How can how can we inspire someone to trust us to share information? How can we inspire someone to trust us to come on board and cooperate with us? How can we inspire our management to trust us to say yes to my operation? I don't care what it was, everything came down to trust. And so that's where it forged. What I found was when I when I focused so much for years on the behaviors I needed to do to inspire someone to trust me, what happened was people around me started to become much more predictable. I started realizing that, wow, people are always going to act in their own best interests in terms of their safety, security, and prosperity and what they think makes them feel safe, which makes people very predictable. 
And hence, I came up with my six signs of predictable behavior where I can predict what they're seeing when they see me and sizing people up is born. Five minute answer as always. Well, that five minute answer left a lot of meat on the bone. I'm thinking <laughs> about six particular bites of meat that are still on that bone. That oh, yeah. Is that six signs? Yeah, so, please. So, so here's the six signs of, and boy, the fact that I can remember them is really kind of remarkable too. Let's give me a test. All right. So the first sign is vesting. So what we're doing when we're looking for signs of vesting is, is someone vested in your success as much as they're vested in yours as their own, as they see it tied together. What this looks like, we've already talked about it. Someone actually sees your challenges and pain points in life, and do they proactively reach out to help you solve them with no ask? That's someone who's vested. Next sign is longevity. Through their actions, words, and deeds, do they see this relationship as transactional or do they see it as longstanding? Signs of this is they give you long-term projects. They think in terms and talk about, hey, a year from now, we'll do X, Y, and Z. Um, maybe we'll work and collaborate on this project next year or next month. So those are signs of vesting. Establishing traditions together is good. Next one is reliability. And that is, do they have the backgrounds that their resume says they do? And do they actually have the diligence to actually follow through on those things? The next one is actions. Actions, words, actions, and deeds, and thoughts. Are they aligned? Um, I call it past patterns and key behaviors are great predictors of future ones. And not that you're going to do something tomorrow the same way you do it today, but we all have this arc and this arc of learning. And so as someone's progressing through their life, it's generally a parabolic curve, as my, as my new pseudo friend, Neil deGrasse Tyson says. Uh, human knowledge doubles every 15 years. And so our personal ability knowledge is basically doubles every 15 years as well if we keep on the path, the path of knowledge and acquisition of information. And so that's actions. Next is language. Are they using language that's about me? Do they focus on me the way I should be focusing on them by those four things you mentioned? Are they seeking my thoughts and opinions? Are they talking in terms of my priorities? Are they validating me and being curious without judging me? And are they giving me choices? And finally, a bedrock of all great healthy relationships are the emotionally stable. Now, granted, we all have moments of fight or flight that hit us when, when the crap hits the fan, but how fast do they come back center again? Are they predictably stable when dealing with situations? Are they problem solvers or are they wound collectors? So those are the six signs. Fantastic. And to give you a shameless plug, I know you just went through those in two and a half minutes to get them in for the listeners, but in sizing people up, you go into much greater detail, yeah. giving background and application and, and for all of those. Um, you and I had some conversation around our previous co conversation around our previous conversation. I can speak English. Trust me. I'll figure it out eventually. <laughs> When we talked previously, some of our conversation centered around like nonverbal behaviors, some things that you previously brought up. And I think we're pretty aligned in the um, the false flag mission, if you will, of trying to catch somebody lying and all the, the problems that are associated with that. Right. Like, just let it go. Don't even do it. Um, when you think about reading somebody's nonverbal and verbal communication, something that you have so much expertise and education on, are there... I guess, let me ask you, I'm going to break one of my own rules. I'm going to ask you a compound question. Try to make the most of your time with me today. When you're evaluating somebody's communication, are there, what are you focusing on? Like, are there specific, specific, I quit. Are there specific emotional changes that you're looking for? And then within those specific emotional changes, are there groups of behavioral shifts that you found to be more reliable 
for from an evaluation standpoint over the years, not from a truth and deception standpoint, but from an identifying what somebody's thinking and feeling standpoint. So what I'm what I've moved into for myself because I just don't do nonverbals. Nonverbals is kind of where I started. One of my great mentors and guides and friends is Joe Navarro, great, great nonverbal expert, world renowned, wrote the book, What Everybody is Saying. And I started in the world of nonverbals and I loved that coding nonverbals. But when I I did more human interaction and recruiting than just interview strategies. So I had to incorporate a lot of other things. So what I'm doing when I'm assessing nonverbals, when I'm doing any interaction, I don't think in terms of nonverbals. I'm thinking in terms of always congruence. I, I'm always looking for, when I first start interacting, I will always do the best I can to make you feel comfortable, safe, and smile, and enjoy our dialogue. In other words, I'm doing all I can to have you light up when I walk through that door. That's now going to be my baseline of your congruence of your of you. I don't try to take you and put you in a box of what you should look like or whether I'm doing this right or wrong. I'm getting you, I'm painting you in the moment. Now, when, I, when we start interacting and having a great dialogue that is hopefully centered on you because I'm using nothing but what spa- statements that keep it focused on specific cognitive thought processes, and I keep the center on you by not using the word I like I've done throughout this entire conversation, I use a lot of you statements. I ask a lot of questions that are specific about what. It keeps the focus entirely on you because I'm using the four keys of communication. As I'm seeing congruence of your nonverbal behavior in your statements, that's all I should see. If I start getting some bubbles um, or the spider senses start tingling because I'm seeing a change in that baseline of your baseline, not a baseline I'm trying to fit you into a box of. If I start seeing some changes in incongruence or your behavior or a tempo, mostly it happens through tempo change mm-hmm. and I'm seeing it in the face, that means something happened. And I have to own what did I bring up that caused a, a thought process change from what we were experiencing before that moment. And then I just have to quickly assess or not, if I had a pre-plan to do something different or own it in the moment, say, ooh, was that too sensitive a topic? Do you want to move on to something else? Would you like to explore it a little further? What can I do to make you feel better about this? And so that's what I'm, that's all I'm doing non-verbally is I'm, I'm baselining you. <laughs> I'm looking for congruence in you. I don't take a box and try to put you in it because I will be off because then where's the focus? It's on what I want to have happen, not on what you want to present me. Again, so many important little threads in that answer from baselining people to not carrying our expectations in. This is how I believe people should act in this situation. I can't tell you how many times teaching interrogation, evaluating videos of other interrogations and having people say, well, innocent people wouldn't act like that. Really? Oh my God. She saw my reaction. And it's like, what do you know about this person? One of the most powerful conversations I've had so far doing this is with a a woman who's become a friend of mine that runs a shelter for um, women and children survivors of sexual abuse and physical abuse. And she does, her team does amazing work. And literally like at the end of the conversation, as we were wrapping up, I asked her a question that I'll ask you in just a minute. Is there anything else you think it's important that we talk about? And one of the things she said was, you know, just be aware that kids don't always react the way you might expect them to if they have been suffering from abuse. You know, some might laugh, some might cry, some might act out. So you got to be aware of all these things. 
And that's so true for people in any given conversation. How we react has so much to do with our personality, our upbringing, our emotions, how we perceive the situation, our fears, all of those things. Getting their baseline, putting our expectations in our back pocket, looking for that congruency. How does the nonverbal align with the verbal? And that whole piece of, you was that topic too sensitive? You look uncomfortable. Like that, that's what it comes down to. It's not truth or lie. It's okay. Yeah. Understanding the sensitivities I might be tripping on, you know, what are my alternatives? Am I going to keep pressing? Am I going to change the topic? Am I going to just throttle back and avoid it altogether? But that's so important. For yeah, people. because if you if you let go of trying to detect deception or truth and you see a change in behavior, you did something that changed them feeling safe. Why do people lie to begin with? Human beings, we're genetically coded not to want to lie. We don't want to lie. People lie because they don't feel safe. What are you going to do? What are you going to do to make them feel safe and inspire them to want to tell you the truth? That's it. It's why it's not, it's not complicated. Now, doing that requires you to let go of your ego, let go of your vanity, let go of your carnival tricks. And granted, again, you need to learn the carnival tricks in order to get to that level where you can let go. But in order to do that, have the courage to get the reps in. You got to get the reps in. You just have to talk to everyone and be thoughtful. And the, bit, and the hardest part, in, and you, we talked about it before, a loving critic. The worst thing we can do is when we have someone willing to give us some truth bombs out of love, the worst thing you can do is argue with them about what they said, because then they'll never tell you again. And then you're screwed. And I do that to my wife all the time, and I try so hard. <laughs> and, I, I, and we got, a, we got it to the point where I don't do it as much. <laughs> and she knows, I, I say, battle through it for me, please, because I'm going to get defensive, because I am insecure, because I, I have self-doubt, because we have all these things. And, and, what, and even saying that to you right now, what am I showing? I'm vulnerable. I'm transparent. I have shit. We all have baggage. I got tons of baggage. Everyone's got baggage. If someone says they don't, they're 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 totally deceiving you. <laughs> so it's allowing that to go the best you can, so you can have somebody who actually can be your teacher, mentor, and guide. And to be a, a loving critic or teacher, mentor, and guide, they don't have to have better skills than you. They just have to have care enough to have objectivity for you. That's it. My wife yeah. isn't as good at a lot of the stuff I do, but you know what she is. She's a great consumer of it, and she knows when it's full of crap. <laughs> my wife, Brooke, and my son, Gabriel, in their own way, are by far my most important loving critics. Brooke, for you know, going on a decade now, being able to say, and I don't know if I'll quote myself the exact same way, but how many times is she able to hit me like a, like, say something in like the softest, most gentlest way, but it hits like a freight train. <laughs> like that soft as possible boxing glove that can't hurt. Oh no, that's going to swell. But that it, it really makes you think. And then with my son, because he's so young, you talk about being objective. Like he just doesn't know any different. So he's going to be that loving critic. Cause he doesn't have that filter. He doesn't have that fear. This is just what I feel. So this is just what I say. So even in the, with the relationship with my wife, obviously it's like you said, let's not damage that. Let's not ruin this. I need that feedback from her. But with my son, it's also how do I respond to him? So as he continues to grow up and starts to develop some of those filters and that awareness, he doesn't stop telling me what he's right. thinking. Feeling. I don't want to scare that out of him. I think when you have a great, healthy conversation with these people, when it's not critical, when emotions are running high about how to have a conversation when these times happen, it really it's a great it's a great skill set to have. It's a great tool to have. 
I mean, so the first time that I saw I shut down my wife when she was really inserting herself in an area that was very helpful and she didn't want to ever do it again. And I was like, no, please, let's let's sit down. Let's have a conversation about what's why I reacted that way. So you understand it. And I'm going to help understand what I know what you were trying to do. You're doing a fantastic, you know, let's work on some phraseology and some awareness in each other so that we can do this for each other. We do it for each other all the time. We, we, I was doing it for her this morning. She's going for, she's got a new job and she's communicating, emailing back and forth. And she'll, we say it to each other all the time. She says, I'm too emotionally invested to write this email. I need you. And I'm like, yep, same thing. Anytime I'm communicating with a new client, with, with anything going on, she's there for me doing exactly the same thing. So I said it to, a, 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 I think I said at the beginning of this, you know, I said to a cop I was talking to, I'm, I'm 90, I, I can be 99% awesome for you. And I'm 60% awesome for me. <laughs> Another quote. You, I've already asked you to overstay the time that you've committed for this conversation. I really appreciate it. If I may ask you just two more questions before we go. Of course. The first one, we've covered so much, you have covered so much ground in this conversation today. Is there anything that you wish I gave you the, the opportunity to share that's important for people to understand that we didn't get to. You know, I'm good. I asked Neil deGrasse Tyson the same question and he gave me a really great answer that I'm going to give you the answer he gave me. He says, he said, you know, you know, your audience better than I do. So no, you covered everything you wanted to cover. And I think you did a great job. <laughs> well, well, thank you. And thank you, Neil. <laughs> Well, I appreciate that. And hopefully if um, I can work a little persuasion, maybe another time down the road, we can do this conversation again. Anytime, anytime. Fill in a, a couple of the gaps. Yeah, I told you, I got a man crush. I'll do anytime you want. Well, I, and I'm willing to take advantage of that. I appreciate <laughs> it. Thank you. Um, but you do, you have so much available for people. So if they haven't picked up on it already, Behind Your Shoulder, your three books, Sizing People Up, Code of Trust, That's Not All About Me, those are up there. This other one called The Discipline Listening Method. <laughs> people have a few extra minutes you know they, they can't sleep they need to tire themselves out they can they can check that one out um i know those are all available on amazon they're on they're available through your website as well you have your own podcast you have your own business your training your speaking that you do please you do so much where can people find you to continue mining from your wisdom yeah, simple. Again, we mentioned it already. Peopleformula.com is the one-stop shop. And my podcast is on there to Forge by Trust, which I highly recommend you take a listen to because Mike's episode on there was absolutely fantastic. One of the best trending ones I had. We talked to spies, spy recruiters, interrogators, and just people. We just have great conversations about their arc of life that gave them the mad skills that they have to overcome anything in life. But the really the biggest thing I want to promote is your podcast. If you are listening to this, the most important thing you can do is hit like, hit subscribe, and share it with as many people as you possibly can because it takes a lot to put on a show. It takes a lot to go out of your way to get guests, to edit this, to to, to extract content that's going to benefit you and the people in your life to the degree that Mike's doing. I highly, highly ask you to do that for him and for yourself and those in your life. Hit subscribe, hit like, and just spread the gospel of goodness that he's uh, given you. Well, I appreciate that. Thank you very much. Just let me know who to make the check payable to. <laughs> we'll get that squared away. But seriously, Robin, I cannot thank you enough for your time today. I can't thank you for enough for all that you shared with all of the listeners today. You do amazing work. You're going in so many different directions and doing so much great stuff. Thank you for carving out a few minutes with us today. And I can't wait to find an opportunity to catch up with you again soon. Anytime, Mike. Thanks for having me on. Take care.
Robin, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. I truly appreciate you taking the time to share your experience, your ideas, your techniques, and your stories with all of us. Thank you. I'm grateful for your humility, your dedication to giving back, to serving others, to making people better, and giving us all the opportunity to learn from and apply the lessons that you had creating relationships under very unlikely circumstances that we can all now use to make the most of our business and personal relationships. Thank you. For the listeners, if you're not already, please follow Robin online. Listen to episodes from his Forged by Trust podcast. Check out his books. Soak up as much learning as you can from him. He has so much to share and so much to teach. Take the time to check him out. Robin, Thank you. And thank you, everybody, for taking the time to listen to our show today. We really appreciate it. Please, when your schedule allows, do the things that the algorithms ask us to. Please like the show. Please share the show. Please comment. Please share your feedback with us. Let us know. What do you like? What do you not like? Would you like to hear more or less? What can we do different? We're always looking to adapt and improve the show. So please share your feedback with us. And of course, on the way out, we want to thank our sponsors one more time. Please go to Humantel and enter the code INQUASIVE25 for 25% off the best in class training for how to understand what somebody is likely thinking and feeling based on accurately evaluating their facial expressions and nonverbal communications to know what emotions are changing and likely why within the context of the situation. Please check out humantel.com and enter that code in Quasi 25. Head over to Emotional Intelligence Magazine at ei-magazine.com and experience their content, webinars, books, articles, events, podcast. Check it all out. Everything you'd want to learn and know about emotional intelligence, check them out at Emotional Intelligence Magazine. And of course, our friends at the International Association of Interviewers, please head over to certifiedinterviewer.com to check out their content, their training online and in person, experience their network opportunities, their legal update, all of their interviewer resources. And while you're there, definitely explore the certified forensic interviewer process to see if you qualify and what it takes to earn the designation. Thank you to all our sponsors. Thank you again to Robin. And most of all, thank all of you for taking the time out of your day to listen to us today. Thank you very much. Stay safe. Take care of each other. We'll see you next time.